Well, I guess we'll uh, get started now. Uh, thank you all very much for coming today. It's going to be an excellent program. I can promise you that. My name is Andrew Colson, and I direct the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. About 16 years ago, uh, one month before I left the software industry to start studying education policy, I heard a wonderful speech by President Bill Clinton. And uh, more, it was a, a good speech with a couple of wonderful lines, very, very astute lines, and they tie in really well to our subject of this conversation today. So I'd like to quote them for you. And the first thing he said that was so interesting to me was that he was, a, he was addressing this group for the launch of the Annenberg Challenge in the Roosevelt Room at the White House. And he said, the people gathered in this room who have dedicated their lives to education are constantly plagued by the fact that most of the problems we face have already been solved by somebody somewhere. We just can't replicate them everywhere else. And he elaborated on that, and he stressed that for him, the most important challenge for American education was to create, and he called it a system, by which excellent schools, solutions to problems are replicated around the country. And he ended off by saying, nobody has unraveled that mystery yet. And I don't know that we'll completely unravel that mystery in the next hour and 15 minutes, but we're going to do our best to get pretty far along. Our featured speakers are Jay Matthews and Ben Chavis. And uh, both of them will talk about two of the top models in education in this country and their efforts to scale up over the past few years. And I'll follow up on that by contrasting scaling up of excellence in education with the way it happens in other fields and what we can learn from the differences. So let me give you uh, a little bit of an introduction to them, and then I will pass the uh, podium over to Ben. Uh, I could say a lot of very interesting things about Ben, but I, I can't do him justice. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let him speak for himself on the more colorful aspects of his methods. But uh, he grew up as a sharecropper uh, or son of sharecroppers in North Carolina, and he started out as an athlete became a coach, became an academic and a teacher, and for the last 10 years or so, I would describe him as a miracle worker because he took over the worst school in Oakland, California, around 2001, a school uh, whose students were terrorizing, literally terrorizing their neighbors who lived around the school, who seemed to treat the criminal code as if it were a to-do list, and he turned these kids around. He turned that school around within seven years, it was ranked one of the top schools in all of California, not just the district. So he's written about how he accomplished that in his book, Crazy Like a Fox, and he'll be talking about that today. And we're very lucky to have him because he flew across the continent to be here. Uh, and he's uh, taking off again, I believe, later today uh, for uh, another stop. We're also very lucky to have Jay Matthews, who many of you know from his nationally syndicated column, Class Struggle in the Washington Post. Jay's also written seven books about education, teachers, kids, and he's covered an enormous amount of ground over the years, a lot of different aspects of education. But there's one thread that really stands out in his work, and that is understanding excellence. Why is it that some teachers and some schools do so much better than others with very similar kids? And he's going to talk about his most recent book, Work Hard, Be Nice, about the KIPP chain of, or KIPP network, of charter schools, which are among uh, the most successful in the country and have been the fastest growing. So uh, with that, let me introduce and uh, ask for a warm welcome for Ben Chavis.
test scores, data. I'm a data nut. It's all about the numbers. <laughs> and the reason I say it's all about the numbers, as an athlete, um, you know, I grew up in a, a little Indian community in North Carolina called Saddle Tree. You may want to use the podium because I think we're filming it. Oh, okay. Thank you. No problem. Yeah. We were up late last night. We flew and got in late. Our plane was delayed and still wanting to stay in the chair. <laughs> so I apologize. But um, I grew up in a, the reason I'm about numbers and times, I grew up in a small Indian community in North Carolina called Saddle Tree. I can't imagine any of you have ever heard of it. It's, but the nearest town is Lumberton, which is maybe a 20-some thousand. And then the largest city would be Fayetteville, which is about you know, about 30 miles away. I don't know. How, I think there's probably 250,000 people in Fayetteville. But in this little small village, I call it, that I grew up in, you know, we were all related. Every, we all went to school together from first grade on up. Um, it, was an, it was an Indian school. And I was required to go to this Indian school because that was the law. People don't realize it. They say, well, we had black schools. We had, you know, blacks and whites. But there were also schools just for Indians. Uh, in North Carolina, we had black restaurants, Indian restaurants, and white restaurants. It's kind of hilarious as a child going through all that. I never really thought of it as discrimination uh, growing up. I didn't know any different. That's just the way it was. And uh, all the Indian, and the Indian restaurant was run by Indians, and the Indian school was run by Indians, so we all had a job. Now you have integration, and none of us have a job. <laughs> so I'm sure somebody benefited. We did not. Believe it or not, the graduation rate is lower now uh, for Indians that we have integration in the community I grew up. The number of kids going to college is lower. The number going to prison has increased significantly. And that's what I did my dissertation on, looking at integration, kids who, Indians who went to an integrated school system versus those who were segregated. Uh, I'm sure there's a happy medium somewhere. But, you know, as we can be extremes on both angles. But getting back to something, a point I wanted to make in that little story is the most important thing is I went to this little Indian school, and no one ever heard of it, and I was an athlete. I was a runner. And the neat thing about running is they don't care where you go to school. Look at the Kenyans. Uh, when I was a kid, it, when I was in college, it was the Kenyans. Today, it's the Ethiopians. People don't care that they grew up in villages. They look at their time. So I attended this all-Indian school. And I was good enough to go to a university based on my time. It didn't matter that I was Indian. It didn't matter that I went to an all-Indian school. They looked at my time. And that's what I'm into. I'm into numbers because the numbers don't lie. You can't lie when you run a half mile on a track. If you run a half mile in Mos Moscow or if you run a half mile in Kenya or if you run it in Mexico City or in Saddle Tree, North Carolina, it's still a half mile. And that half mile provided a way for me to go to college. Unfortunately, I wasn't a very good student. Um, you know, as a child, I ran a lot from the cops, from school administrators, from whoever it was. I was always running for some reason. But it what did provide me an opportunity to go to college. And when I got into college, I ran with whites, blacks, Mexicans, Kenyans. We even had one Chinese. And when we had a mile relay team, we had a, one black guy, his name was Ricky Fuller. We had a white guy. His name's Mark Milky. He lives in Vegas. Ricky lives in Tucson. And we had a Mexican guy named Luis Bolivar from Nogales, Arizona. And we had an Indian guy from North Carolina. 
And we'd go to big meets and all, and they'd say, what is this? Why you got all these white guys? So once I entered college, I became a white guy. <laughs> Couldn't go to the white school, but in Arizona, we were all white. You were either white or black, and that was it. And even Louis, although he was a Mexican, he looked white. But what I found about on that relay team, we were all brothers. It didn't matter what color we were. We wanted to beat you. We wanted to be the best. We practiced. We worked hard. And that was our goal. And it didn't matter who we ran against um, or where we ran or what invitationals we were invited to. We were invited because of our time. So the point being, I'm really into numbers. Because numbers, time, changed my life. And I know that academics can change kids' lives. So I took this whole philosophy of growing up in poverty, uh, being an athlete, and when I got into business, I used the same philosophy. And I'm a pretty successful business person. I'm an Indian who tried to buy back America and lease it to non-Indians. <laughs> it's illegal, guys. <laughs> Um, but I use that same philosophy in running a school. I don't care what color the kids are. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, so what we do at our school, I'm going to share real simple. It's real simple what we do at our school. We're in middle school, sixth through eighth grade. And what we do is when a kid comes in, in the sixth grade, they must start, all students must attend summer school. All students, it doesn't matter. But summer school is a time for us to introduce our new sixth graders to our school culture, which is work. I grew up, if you're ever in Saddle Tree, North Carolina, when you drive into Saddle Tree, there's a big sign that says, Welcome to Saddle Tree, a community at work. So that's where my line comes from, a school at work. That line has stuck with me throughout my life, and it'll probably be on my tombstone some way when I die a man who believed in work or something. But in this school, what we do is these kids start summer school in June, about June 15th, and they go for three weeks all day. They must bring their own lunch. When I was a sharecropper, no one brought my lunch to the field. I had to bring my own lunch, and I was a very young boy. I started working on the farm when I was about, you know, as far as I can remember. I cannot remember not working. I remember as a little three-year-old passing tobacco to my grandpa. And that's just the way it was. But my grandpa did not bring me my lunch to the field when I, was a, when I was about eight or nine years old. I had to bring my own sandwich. So in our school, I say, if you're in the sixth grade and you can't make a peanut butter jelly sandwich and bring it to school, you should starve. And I hear people who say, well, you know, you don't understand that minorities are poor and minorities are this. Well, let me tell you something about minorities. And I can't speak for white people, but I can't speak for Indians Latins, I'm married to one, and blacks, I'm related to a lot of them. We are not going to miss a meal. Don't worry about us starving. No minority, I haven't met any starving minorities in America. We have a different problem. We're usually overweight or we have sugar diabetes, and I'm not making this up. Sugar diabetes is, wake, is wiping out my people. So we're not going to miss a meal. We may miss a bus, but we won't miss a meal. So that's my philosophy in short is I'm not a victim. My students are not victims. So they must bring their own meal. And school starts at 8 o'clock. If you're late one second, you have a, a detention after school for an hour the following day because we let your family know. But from 8 o'clock to 9.30, every child in our school, every child, 
is taking is doing language arts or what you call English for an hour and a half every day from 930 to 10. I mean, from 930 to 11 o'clock, every student is doing math, an hour and a half of math. And what's unique about this model is I grew up in a tribal community. Everybody was related. And what I noticed in reading the literature and what I've heard sociologists and psychologists regurgitate for, four, for the past five decades is when kids in middle, enter middle school, their bodies are changing, their minds are changing. So what do we do to kids when they enter middle school? We give them six or seven different teachers. We're going against exactly what we say is the problem. So what I did in my middle school is you have one teacher in the sixth grade, and she teaches all, she or he teaches all subjects except for math. I mean, except for PE. And people say, how can you do this? Well, we do it in the fifth grade. Ah, why not moving up one more grade? So I do that, and then, but what is even more unique, that teacher stays with my students for three years. The teacher moves up to the seventh grade with these kids, then the teacher moves up to the eighth grade with these kids. I have very smart teachers. Some people would tell you that just because a person is smart does not mean they're a good teacher. So the other option you have is hire a dumbass. <laughs> See where you get with that one. So I hire smart people. And 90% of the time, guess what? I get great results and the 10% we fire. Because there's always somebody out there looking for a job who wants to do a good job. So when I fire somebody, it doesn't phase me. Some people say, don't you feel bad? I said, no, I feel glad for the new person we're going to hire because they've been unemployed and they're going to get a job. So I have a different philosophy. And the kids at our school bet on who's going to be fired first. <laughs> While in other public schools, they bet on which, school, which kid is going to get kicked out first. We have never expelled a kid in our school. We do not believe in that philosophy. You can't educate them if they're on the streets. So uh, we don't believe in suspension either, but the school district says you have to put that in your policy because what if a kid comes to school with a knife? Well, what I found most Americans call a knife in my day, we would have called fingernail clippers or fingernail cleaners. So, um, you know, we, if we suspend a kid, if we have to, they're still in school. You know, they just stay after school or they come early. That's my idea. Or they come on Saturday also. And so, if they come on Sunday, they'll come to my house, which we do. And my wife, who's sitting in the back, it's the first time we've been alone together in seven years. She finally got her to leave the kids for a weekend. Um, we, uh, we bring them to our house. And, 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 and that's another thing. We create a family in our school. So it seems like I'm bouncing around, but I'm Indian. I'm a storyteller. I'm trying to tell you a story. So forgive me if I'm going all over. Um, so what we do is we create a family. And in that family, you have to spend time together. So our kids who spent three years with the teacher, at the end of three years, we send the teacher and the kids who graduate to Washington, D.C., all expense paid trip by the school. We do not raise funds at our school. You fundraising, I don't know what's fun about raising money. So uh, I donate my salary back to the school I've been blessed by God, the creator, whoever, hard work, whoever you want to call them, and I, get, I can afford to give my salary back. Uh, and that's what pays for the kids to come to Washington, D.C. It also pays our kids uh, who do well. We also give kids who are 
doing well, we, I walk around and I give them money. Teacher says, my class has been well. I want you to acknowledge these students and I give them money. Poor kids love money, guys. It's all about the money. That's why they sell drugs. But what we've created in our school is stability. The kids don't rotate. They don't have all these teachers. In, in, in three years, they will have their self-contained teacher, a PE teacher, uh, SAT prep teacher. Our kids start preparing for the SAT in the seventh grade. Thanks to Jay. We're trying to get a head start on the Jews and the Gentiles, <laughs> who they start, I think, even sooner. But we're going to catch up. Uh, so that's what we do. We really try to create a family, and we do create a family. And I think that's the success to our, fam our, our family. People will tell you that I embarrass kids. I have never in my life ever embarrassed a child. Read the Bible and see what God does to people. <laughs> God could not be a teacher. If I'm embarrassing people, I don't know what, what they would say God's doing. Uh, but in the Bible, when you read Genesis, God starts out with a contract between Adam and Eve. And he says, here's the contract. You can stay here free. I charge people to stay in my rentals. You can stay in the Garden of Eden free. But if you mess with my apple tree over here, I'm going to evict you. As a landlord, that's the way I work. Uh, they have to pay. But in our kids, what I do is if they come to school late, there's a, there's a consequence. If they do not do their schoolwork, when you come to our school, you do not get a seat. You must sit on the floor. A seat is an honor. It's not, you know, a privilege. It's not you just get a seat because you're here. So I do things like that. I keep them after school. And if you are Mexican and you're continuously being lazy, I'll say, hey, you're lazy Mexican. You're Mexican and you're lazy. What's embarrassing about that? That's what people are going to call you. If you're an Indian, I'll say, you're a lazy Indian and you're embarrassing me. And I have a problem with that. And if you're white and you're lazy, I say, it's proof there's some lazy white people. And let me tell you, when you come into our school, more Chinese sit on the floor than anybody else. I don't know what it is about my school, but for some reason, I think I got most of the lazy Chinese in America. Every kid in our school this past year, every kid except the Asians, tested advanced in the eighth grade on the algebra exam. Every Indian, every black, every Mexican, every white, but not the Asians. I don't get it. Uh, it's a myth. They're not that smart, guys. They just work hard. And that's what we do at American Indian Public Charter School. Am I going overtime? We work hard. And if you're lazy, we point it out. In American society, when you point out facts, people have issues with that. When I was a kid, uh, when I was a kid, if you were on welfare, if the, if the government was giving you money, it was called welfare. Today, we call it stimulus. I don't get it. My tribe got about $4 million. I don't understand why you need to give an Indian tribe $4 million as part of the stimulus package or the welfare package. In our school, we do not believe in welfare. We believe in hard work, and that's what we've instilled in our kids. Uh, we've recently opened a high school a couple years ago, a three, this is the fourth year. Last year, every senior in our school graduated. Every senior got a scholarship to college to a university. Cornell, MIT, how would you like to be a Mexican? or an Indian, or a black, and they're fighting over you to go to MIT. 
they're not fighting over my Chinese students or my white students because I guess there are a lot of them there. Stanford, MIT, it was funny to me to watch them fight over my kids, but I love it. It's called competition, and it reminds me of when I was an athlete in college. There's no difference. It's the same deal. Um, our kids do very well in school, and uh, it's because of hard work. It's simple. It doesn't cost any money. We don't allow technology in our school. Um, I know Jay Matthews did write an article about the president's speech to schools. I don't have a problem with the president's speech, but I, I don't allow TVs in our school. I don't think we should be paying schools all this money and then let kids watch TV. We should be teaching. If kids want to listen to the president. They want to listen to Ben Chavis. They want to listen to you. They should listen to him after school. And everybody has, what's it called, TiVo, Ebo, or whatever. They can record it and watch it at night. Uh, we don't have technology because in my neighborhood, before I came, if you had computers, they would break into school and steal the computers and pawn them. I got rid of all the computers. I got rid of um, an alarm system, which was like about $397 a month. No one's broken into the school. No black, no Mexican, no white, no Chinese, no Indian will steal an algebra book. <laughs> you cannot pawn an algebra book. Leave it in your car in Washington, D.C., anywhere in America. You have nothing to worry about. Leave a computer and see what happens. We have had no break-ins since I've got rid of the computers. It's not that I'm against technology. I'm against, I'm against subsidizing thieves. And I was a thief when I was a kid. That's why I know all this. And I'm not bragging about that. I changed. Ben Chavis changed. Anybody can change. Um, I'm going to close on that note. I would like to thank my wife because my success really is my wife, Marcia Amador, who sits in the back. Her family's from Central America, from Guatemala, Nicaragua. She, her life is much more interesting than my life. They killed her family. They, shot her, they killed her father, her <laughs> uncle, her grandma. She understands America. She's a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I don't hold that against her. I borrow most of my ideas from her. The Democrats have it wrong, guys. We are wrong. I'm a Democrat. We are wrong about public education. I'm a Democrat. We have screwed up the public school systems. Thank God we got the Republicans watching us. Thank God. Thank you for the work, your support. Uh, keep doing what you are doing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of happy the Democrats are in office now. I, I prefer having a Republican as president myself. Uh, I like a split. I, I like it when you have Democrats and Republicans. In the, uh, I don't like it all one party. But as my wife says, she says, Ben, we have you right where we want you, meaning the Democrats in Washington, D.C. Now we can keep an eye on you. When she said that, after I thought about it later, I realized what she was also saying when she married me, she has me right where she wants me also. <laughs> she can keep an eye on me. Thank you, honey, for all your support, and thank you guys for having me here. Uh, ben, uh, that's terrific. Thanks. I, um, I'm delighted that we both are in politically mixed marriages. It's a very exciting way to be. Uh, and, um, um, and I'm delighted that you shared my view about the president's speech. You know, I, I argued that the president's a great man. He's going to give a great speech, but it was a waste of class time for kids to be watching TV. So uh, taking all the TVs out of a school, well, I mean, just one of the many remarkable things you've done. Uh, and I'm, the column I wrote about that got huge response, almost all negative. I would just tear it up one side and on the other. And so um, as I was, you know, looking forward 
to being on this panel with Ben and reading his book, um, I said, well, I'll write, a, I'll write a column about Ben and his book. And he's a wild man. You know, people are going to tear up anything that says about this guy who's just doing everything differently than the way, you know, the great pundits think it ought to be done. So columns in uh, on uh, our blog this morning, uh, WashingtonPost.com slash class hyphen struggle. Um, it's my Friday column. And I talked about the book. And, and then I've emphasized something that he did, which I think he's mentioned it briefly, which is completely beyond the practice of any other middle school in America. As he explained to you, um, kid arrives in the sixth grade. He has one teacher for math, English, uh, everything, except for PE. And that teacher moves with the kid to seventh grade and eighth grade. Not only does he not uh, departmentalize, which is the term, but he loops three years. So the kid, for all those three years of middle school, is with the same teacher almost every hour of the day except for PE. Now, no, I've yet to find any other middle school in America other than Ben's that do that. So I wrote about this, made a big deal of it, and I figured I was just going to get killed uh, with the comments, which is you know, a big deal for us because controversy produces page views, saves our jobs. You know, we're now counting how many people actually read our columns. So I, I looked up um, the column this morning, and there were already a lot of comments, and to my great disappointment, all of them agree with Ben. Not only do they agree with what he's doing, but one of them came up with a great analogy I wish I had, which is, you know, this is the return to the one-room schoolhouse. Back in the day, we had kids staying with one teacher teaching all, and, and if it works for these kids in the way it has, um, it, we might think about it working for everybody. Uh, ben likes numbers, so do I. Um, the thing to underline about his school, um, which he was fairly modest about, is that his middle school is now the fifth-ranked School in Cal- middle school in California based on the API, based on test scores. And he, he puts the numbers in the back of his book, which I'm very pleasant about. So I'm going to read you some, the names of the, the, the four schools that are ahead of Ben on this list and, and their demographics. Uh, Hopkins Junior High in Fremont, um, their score was 780, uh, 987, which it goes up to 1,000, right? So, so 987 on the API score. Uh, Hopkins, 3%. Low income. Uh, number two, Joaquin Miller Middle in Cupertino. That's, again, the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh, 976, 3% low-income kids. Uh, number three, Elkhorn in Lodi, which is 27% low-income. I'll have to visit this school because that's, that's getting up there. 976. Number four, Kennedy Middle in, again in Cupertino, 2% low-income. And number five, the American Indian Public Charter School in Oakland, 81% low-income kids. Now, when you see those kind of numbers, you know something's going on. And I'm, I want to explain to you what I think is going on. Um, this guy's a wild man, um, but of a certain kind. He's got that same um, creative urge to make trouble in order to help kids. Uh, he's, he's very similar to the people I've written about, Jaime Escalani, um, Mike Feinberg, and Dave Levin of the KIPP schools. Um, and if we're going to talk about scaling up, which is what this, this luncheon is about, um, we first have to know what we're scaling up for. Uh, only certain kinds of models are going to scale up. Only, and only, only models I can see that really are worth scaling up are the ones that were started by and inspired by wild men like Ben, like Mike and Dave at KIPP. Uh, I, I've started to call them the desperados because I think the best schools come out of the most desperate situations. Uh, Mike and Dave starting in some, in some of the worst neighborhoods in America. Ben starting with a school that was just awful. Uh, 
in desperate situations, creative wild men, creative desperados like Ben and Mike and Dave can do things that you really can't do in Fairfax County or Montgomery County. Uh, there's, there's no way to go uh, but up. I, you know, we talk about the no excuses schools, and that's the way you define, I think, the best charter schools, the ones that we should scale up, the ones that don't make any excuses for kids. As Ben says, you're going to work hard. You're going to get this stuff done. I also call them the, the nothing-to-lose schools because these are schools led by people who really feel nothing. In Ben's case, he had nothing to lose because he had established his career. He was financially secure. He'd, he'd been a success as an educator and everything he did. Then he had, was asked to come rescue this school. Um, Jaime Escalani, same thing. He was sort of established in his, in his place. They were, no, we're going to fire him, but he really wanted to do something more. And Mike and Dave had nothing to lose because they were 24 years old, um, too young and dumb uh, to know that there was nothing to lose. And, and they liked the, just the fire, sticking it in the face of the administration like anybody who's 24 years old in this country. Um, so um, here's what I learned um, about what really works and what, we, what are the qualities, and they're absolutely evident in everything Ben said about uh, American Indian public charter schools, the little qualities that we can scale up. Um, I learned about this first from Jaime Escalani, who was the famous math teacher in East Los Angeles, Garfield High School. They did a movie, Stand and Liver, about him. He, he was the man who turned me into an education reporter. I stumbled into his classroom in 1982, six years before they made the movie, before he became famous, uh, and spent five years there hanging around and saw things that just blew me away. Um, a school, uh, Garfield High School, you know, very similar demographically to what Ben's got, except everybody was Hispanic. 85% low income in that school, but a big 3,500 kids in that school. You wouldn't expect to see any AP going on, and the place was bursting with AP courses and tests, and they were doing very well. How could that happen? Uh, I watched Jaime, a, a true wild man in the Ben Chambers tradition, do, do um, amazing, you know, things that would ordinarily get you fired if you did them in Montgomery and Fairfax County. Um, if a, he had a rule, if, your ki- if the kid missed more than two days in his class, he would call the parents up and say, I hadn't seen your child the last two days. If I don't see my class tomorrow, I'm going to call the INS and check on your immigration status or call the police, whatever you know, authority he could wave in their faces. Um, uh, kids try to drop out of his c- courses, and he taught from algebra. He taught all the steps of math so he'd make sure his kids were ready for calculus. Um, I saw lots of kids try to get out of the algebra class, you know, because he, he would lie. He would say, this algebra is going to be easy. And the kid, I saw a kid come up and say, you know, Mr. Escalante, it's not that easy. Uh, um, you know, you're giving us a lot of homework, and, and I've got a girlfriend and a job after school. I'm just going to have to drop your class. And he would look at the kid, and again, this, don't try this in, at McLean High. Um, he would look at the kid with a perfectly straight face and say, oh, I'm sorry, we have special rules for me in this school. Uh, you can't drop my class unless I sign your piece of paper, and I'm not going to sign it. And the kid would, never having heard this, would go off to the, the counsel, his counselor, who would be a designated Jaime Escalante prevaricator, tell this same outlandish story. If he went to Ben Jimenez, the principal, somebody who would really, Ben would really like, because Ben was the ultimate wild man, and he used to, you know, fire guns. He was a former Green Beret. Uh, he would love to, to tell this lie, and the kid would come back confused, but the more the kid remained in the class, not being able to get out, the more chances he had of having some success, and once he had some success... He began to get interested, and suddenly he wakes up, and he's finishing calculus. He's about to take the exam. He's going to get a five on the calculus exam three years later. Um, so um, numbers, the Garfield numbers. Very quickly, uh, I found out as I was writing a book about Garfield that there were only four high schools in the United States who had more kids taking AP calculus than Garfield High School. Uh, the four were Andover, very fine private school. 
Bronx Science, Stuyvesant, both of which you have to get in, uh, uh, take an exam to get into in New York, and uh, Alhambra High School on the outside skirts of L.A. County, mostly Chinese-American kids. Uh, now, I'm not sure about the nature of the Chinese-American kids at Ben's school, but these were really driven, and they always had a strong math program. Those only four schools in America had beaten Garfield, and yet Garfield had 85% low income. So that prop couldn't have happened. Couldn't have happened. Um, we know kids like that can't perform that level, but there was more stuff coming in. In 1987, 25% of all the Mexican-American students in the United States of America who passed an AP calculus test, 25%, attended Garfield High School. Uh, now, that's a huge plus for Garfield and a terrible indictment for what we were doing with all the, the thousands of uh, Hispanic kids out there who weren't getting that chance to do that well. Um, so let's jump now to Kip. I see Kip as sort of the junior version of, of, um, of, um, of what I saw at Garfield. These two guys, um, teacher America teachers, big, tall, full of themselves, thought they're God's gifted women, God's gifted education, went into the classroom, felt were awful, were so embarrassed at how badly they were, they began to work very hard. And they were doing the same things as they developed Kip that Jaime did at, at uh, Garfield. Four things. High expectations for all their kids, st getting extra time for instruction. You know, Ben says he requires everybody to go to summer school. Um, he, I'm sure he makes sure, he, you know, no more TVs to waste time in classroom. And, of course, uh, in Kip's case, they changed to a nine-hour school day. Um, also require summer school and have Saturday sessions. Number three, have an effective assessment, a test, that they take seriously. Ben takes the state test seriously. They took the uh, – Mike and Dave did the same thing. They didn't talk about teaching the test. They talked about beating that test. And last but not least, create that family and team spirit. Ben talked about family. Mike and Dave talked about team and family. That was it, those four things. And their numbers kept. Um, they, we now have uh, data, longitudinal data for the, for the first, oh, about 1,000 kids who have done all four years of Kip Middle School and gone on. Uh, and they have, on average, gone – they start at fifth grade, end at eighth grade – gone from the 32nd to the 60th percentile in reading in those four years and from the 40th to the 82nd percentile in math. Those kinds of gains for those kinds of kids – and we're talking, again, 85 percent low-income kids, uh, uh, 82 schools in 19 states in the district – those kind of gains for those kind of kids have not occurred in any other program. So those are the numbers. Those are the results. Um, now, um, what did they do? These are, these are pushy guys. These are crazy guys. Crazy like a fox. That's Mike and Dave. Um, Dave only got his first job in Houston because when the principal he wanted to work for told him he needed a, a, um, a, um, a certificate showing, showing he, could, he could teach um, English as a second language, um, he came back after not finding a job anywhere else and said, oh, yeah, I got that certificate. Complete lie. Um, but if he had not lied to that principal, which could get you fired in a lot of places, he would never have met Harriet Ball, another teacher at that school, Bastion Elementary, who taught him and Dave how to teach, a natural teacher, and, and that's the beginning of KIPP. Um, and on Mike's side, um, his first year running his KIPP school in Houston, he wasn't getting space for his new school. Uh, he wanted to go to a place that had more room for not just fifth grade, sixth grade. So he, when nobody was doing, doing any help, he, he had an advocacy and democracy lesson for his fifth graders. These are all, almost all Hispanic fifth graders. Taught them, well, you know, in the United States, we not only, you know, vote, but we petition, you know, 
um, governments, um, garbage companies um, for our grievances. Here's a list of all the phone numbers of the 20 top officials in the Houston Independent School District. We're going to practice what you're going to say to them when they call on the phone, asking them, where, why haven't we gotten more space for next year? This happened. Um, the phones went off the hook. Dave's one rabbi in the, in the school district just went complex because he was doing these terrible things to her reputation. People still remember that advocacy and democracy lesson, but Dave got his, um, Mike got his space. Um, now, scaling up for Mike and Dave meant outside help. And you saw, I hope, maybe in yesterday's Washington Post, an obit I wrote of a man named Don Fisher and his wife, Doris. Uh, and you could say it's good luck that Mike and Dave fell into the orbit of a billionaire, the founder of The Gap, but really, wild men like men like Mike and Dave, they get noticed. You mean, they're going against the grain, they're doing things that people don't, that gets noticed. People like me notice them. You know, people in education know them. may complain about them, but the word gets around. People like that fall into the orbit of people who have the resources to help them scale up, and that's what happened in Mike and Dave's case. Um, and, you know, they dis- discovered that um, this old guy in his 70s, um, Don Fisher, actually was as much a wild man as they were when they were beginning to start the ramping up of the new KIPP schools, and uh, they had um, discovered that um, uh, they, didn't, they didn't think they had it all planned out well, and they went to Don and said, well, you know, we've got to wait another year to get this all, you know, arranged so we we'll make sure we start in the right way. And Don said, uh, you know, uh, you guys, none of you guys ever spent a day in a business. I've been doing this for 40 years. Start now. You'll learn more from your mistakes doing it than you will sitting there studying it for another year. And that's what they did. Indeed, that is the key to ramping up, certainly KIPP, and I think any system that works. Um, they decided they, they have ramped up not by building buildings, but by building principles. Uh, the way KIPP has grown is to find the best possible teachers you can find who are ready to re- lead a school. Say, okay, you are the KIPP teacher. Where do you want to go? The, they tried to get Susan Scheffler, who runs, who's created the KIPP schools in D.C., when they first appointed her, she was one of the first, to go to Atlanta because the governor in uh, Georgia was just, you know, panting to get KIPP schools. And she said, no, my friends and family are here in D.C. If you want me, you're going to have to put me here. So they said, okay. Their rule is you build principles. If you've got great people and you let them do it. So she, like all KIPP principles, you know, put, up, put together the charter application, picked her team, decided with her team what they're going to teach and how, uh, and that team concept, strong leader with a group of people she picks and can get rid of if they're not breaching the standard, just as Ben was talking about, that creates this enormous, enormous font of activity in, in pushing up the achievement level of kids. And they are imaginative in ways. They, there's no KIPP curriculum. Um, some of the teachers, in fact, you know, people think that KIPP is this traditional you know, drill and kill thing. It's not. I mean, most of the KIPP teachers, if you looked at them, are constructivists. They're lovers of John Dewey. Um, they do stuff that works for kids. Um, there is a teacher in the KIPP AIM school here who threw out the, the, the Harriet Ball playbook on teaching math, went to a constructive approach, and they were sort of uncertain, but they give teachers their head just like they let teachers be creative, just like they let great principals be creative. Her results went from the 16th percentile that one year to the 72nd percentile for just that class of kids. Uh, she called it constructivist. I haven't looked at it carefully, but she knew what worked, and she went with it. So that's where we are. As I said, KIPP now has 82 schools in 19 states in the district. It will have about 100 schools in 20 states in the district next year. They keep going up. That's 
you could say, well, that's not very many schools. Is that really ramping up? If we have a lot of, we have a lot of no excuses schools groups now. We have Ben, we have um, um, uh, Uncommon Schools. We've got a whole long number list of people who are coming up the same way with similar methods. That will mean more growth. And you, we are infecting the regular public schools. Michelle Ree, all the things she's doing in D.C., is essentially a clone of Mike and Dave. Same age, started at Teach for America at the same time. Um, actually, Mike and Dave were friends with her ex, who was a math teacher in Houston. Um, essentially, she's trying to charterize the D.C. public schools. Maybe it not work, but we're going to be a lot better off than we were before. Um, Millard House, uh, the second, was the creator of the, of, the, um, of the KIPP school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, he is now uh, a deputy superintendent of the Tulsa public schools, doing the same things there. Uh, as more KIPP people rise up, and bleed off into the regular public school systems, we're going to find that their ability to change things will be terrific. Now, I'm going to end just, this is Cato, so I want to give you one more story of, of, of fight against the cold, dead hand of the educational establishment. You know this. You, you breathe it. But one more bit of folklore to add to your collection. Uh, this is about Dave Levin. His second year of teaching... Uh, he did so well that the, the, the faculty at Bastion Elementary voted him Teacher of the Year. And um, this is just before he was going to go off and start KIPP with Mike. And uh, the principal came in and said, well, congratulations on your award. Say, Dave, would you do something for me? Um, we've got 11 kids in your classroom, haven't been in the country very long. Um, we really don't want those kids to have to take the state test. Uh, and the rules say if you sign this form exempting them, then we can do that. You know, it would just be terrible strain on them to take the state test. And Dave said, you know, I've been working with those kids. Harriet's been helping me. I think they can really pass. Uh, I don't think I should, should sign. And the principal, never having heard this from any of his teachers, outraged, went to the kids' parents and said, you know, it would be terrible if your kids had to take the state test. You know, they just haven't been here very long. Let's give them a break. You know, they'll, we'll, we'll, they'll be ready next year. And the parents said, you know, that nice Mr. Levin told us never to sign anything that you uh, gave us. <laughs> Does that sound like our man here? Um, we're not going to sign. And, of course, you know, they did pass. But the last day of, of Dave's second year of teaching, when he was teacher of the year at Bastion, principal came in with his little entourage, gave Dave his pink slip. He was fired. For what? Insubordination. That's what people like Ben Mike and Dave are fighting against. Uh, anything we can do to scale up against that kind of, you know, dysfunction, unexamined assumptions is the best things we can do. And, and um, I, I suspect this is a room full of very bright Cato people who got so, all kinds of other ideas to move in that direction. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, thanks very much, both of you. Uh, just wonderful stories. And um, it, it shows that there's been a tremendous change in education in this country in the past 20 years. When, when Jay's book came out on Jaime Escalante, that was 1988. And two years later, Escalante was demoted from head of the math department at Garfield High to just another one of the teachers. He ruffled the feathers of everyone he worked with, with a few exceptions. Um, he taught classes that had 50 kids in them, which was way more than the teacher's union contract required, and he still excelled. So a lot of teachers just felt that made them look bad. So they hated him. He got threats. He got personal threats. So after three, four years of this, uh, Escalante, having begun to lose control over the program that he'd created painstakingly over 10 years, left K-12 education 
Four years after Stand and Deliver, the movie came out, four years after Jay's book came out, he left K-12 education. That's what happened in, and, that, and it's not an unusual story, that's what happened to excellence in education as recently as 20 years ago. Things have changed as a result of charter schools. Um, like Jay said, KIPP now has 82 schools serving 20,000 kids. That is a huge improvement. I mean, we went from burying excellence to growing it. But put that in perspective. Put KIPP's growth or the growth of AIPCS, an incredible school, in the perspective of the rest of society, the rest of the world, the other things we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Five years ago, nobody had ever heard of Google. Nobody had ever heard of Facebook. Today, Google does 300 million searches every day. Facebook has more than 300 million active members. That's in five years. That's high-tech. But bricks and mortar, it's the same thing. Think of Whole Foods. Think of Starbucks. 20 years ago, they were nothing. Now, you can find them everywhere. What happened, in, it, what, what happened with charter schooling has been a tremendous improvement, but when you compare the scale uh, of, of growth in these sectors, it's enormously different. Um, when Howard Schultz took over Starbucks in 1987, it wasn't a coffee shop chain. They just roasted beans, and they sold whole beans. There were six shops around Seattle. He changed them over into coffee shops when he took over the company, and within 10 years, he had 1,300 shops in a half a dozen countries uh, in North America and Asia. And that was not particularly unusual, and he kept doing it. And today, he has 17,000 stores in 42 countries. And, you know, the company's well, running into a bit of trouble now. Maybe it's growing a little more slowly due to the economic downturn. People aren't buying as many frou-frou coffee drinks, but, you know, he's still got 17,000 stores, so not too bad. Uh, we have to understand why that's normal. Why is it normal in almost every other field for excellence to explode on the scene in a short period of time and take over? Whereas in education, we're fighting tooth and nail to get 80 schools in a decade. Um, now, as both of them said, I mean, you know, KIPP's not alone. AIPCS is not alone. There are other schools doing these same things. But there aren't enough of them. They're not growing fast enough to even come close to what we expect on a day-to-day -day basis in things as mundane as coffee. So what's the difference? It's important to understand why and how KIPP grows versus why and how Starbucks grows or how AIPS, AIPCS grows. The fundamental core is funding, right? How much money do you have? How do you get your money? How sustainable is your source of money? Uh, as Jay said, it was Don and Doris Fisher who provided $60 million over the past decade for the growth of KIPP. Um, ben has now received funding from the Corette Foundation to help reproduce his school model. But this is philanthropic funding, and philanthropic funding, there's nothing inherently sustainable about it. Sometimes donors lose interest in a project. Sometimes the money runs out. Sometimes, as with uh, Don Fisher, they pass away. And this doesn't mean that they're Philanthropy is, is useless. I mean, my God, the, the effect that Don Fisher had on the lives of tens of thousands of kids is enormous. This incredible impact that he had. And it's going to last these kids through their entire lives. But it is not inherently sustainable. There's nothing that's going to make sure 10 or 20 years from now there are in inexorable forces pushing these schools to expand and pushing new and, and different competitors to expand alongside them. Compare that to what happened with Starbucks. 
Schultz had to go to 242 prospective investors before he found 24 who'd be willing to back him taking over Starbucks. So 90% of the investors he approached said no. And that's because he didn't have much of a track record of success. So he had to give a really persuasive pitch. He got his $3.5 million that he needed to buy Starbucks and start converting it to coffee shop chains. Five years later, he had enough success. He was able to show, I think, by, the time, by that time, something like 180 schools, or sorry, 180 coffee shops after five years, that more investors were interested, more than he you know, could handle uh, as a privately held company. So he went public, and he got the general public to invest in Starbucks, raised millions and millions of dollars, dramatically accelerated the pace at which he could grow. And everyone who invested in Starbucks did it with, self, with their own self-interest in mind. They were all expecting a return on, the, on their investment. They knew it was speculative, but they invested in Starbucks because they felt that they would get a return on their investment, that it was a good bet. And so it was sustainable. He raised millions of dollars for this massive expansion, started spreading around the globe. The more he expanded, the more customers he got. And the more customers, the higher his profit margin was because his overhead was relatively lower. So the more customers, the more revenue and profits, the more profits, the faster he could grow. And it's a self-sustaining process. People are always interested in looking for a way to turn $100 into $150 or $200. So there will always be investors for any enterprise in the free enterprise system that can show a good prospect for sustainable growth. So it's key to have this, key to have the ability to offer investors a return on their investment so that you do not rely solely on goodwill and philanthropy for the expansion of excellence. But it's not enough. You need this, but it's just not sufficient. Some of the other things uh, both Ben and Jay talked about um, that you need. You need this total control. You need to be able to decide who's working for you, how they're trained, what they do, what materials they use. The whole ethic, the whole family culture, all of it, you have to have total control over this. And it's hard. It's fighting tooth and nail. Within the, even within public charter school systems, it's hard to always get that level of control. Much easier within a free enterprise system in most sectors of the economy. Nobody is telling Starbucks what color to paint the walls or you know, whether to make caramel macchiatos with one and a half ounces of uh, sweetener or two. You know, it's, just, it's totally under the control of the entrepreneur. So you need that control. And you also need the incentive structure that's driving investment from the outside to work on the inside. Schultz is a huge fan of profit sharing. So if you work at Starbucks, every year you get shares. And the number of shares you get, partly a function of your salary, partly a function of how well you've been doing. So the longer you work at Starbucks, the more Starbucks shares you're accumulating, and the more of a vested interest you have in the company's overall success. If Starbucks stock goes up, you make more money. And so it builds this lasting attachment to the success of the corporation. And as a result of that, you get you know, a number of Starbucks millionaires and uh, a lot of very dedicated employees who are constantly looking for new ways to go above and beyond. And it's not, it's not relying on incidental greatness. It's not relying on uh, you know, just trying to be lucky enough to find the right people. You, you make the people who are working for you great by virtue of allowing them to share in the success of the enterprise as a whole. So this system 
I mean, it's very different from our system of education. It's totally different from our system of education. Uh, For-profit investment, total autonomy for the people operating the business. It's nothing like what we do in education, and it's even beyond what we do in charter schooling. And a lot of people feel just, no, you know, that's too much. I mean, that's that's crazy talk to say that we should run education like a for-profit business. Uh, It's a very widespread belief, but... It's also a testable hypothesis because it's, it's not like this is some sort of fantasy that uh, you know, people have, you know, pundits have cooked up. There are places you can go in the world where education is run as a business, as part of the free enterprise system. And we can just look at them and find out, do they grow in the same way that for-profit enterprises grow in every other field? It's hard to find that kind of thing in the United States, but you can see little snippets of it in the after-school tutoring sector. So we've all heard of Sylvan, Huntington, Kumon, these after-school centers that help kids with math or reading or what have you. And it's becoming big business in the U.S. Well, it's mega business in Asia, in Japan, in Korea, in Hong Kong. Tutoring schools are huge, multi-billion dollar business. And Part of that is because of the culture, emphasis on education, but a lot of it is because of the stress placed on entrance exams to college. Now, I personally would argue pedagogically it's not a great idea to make entrance to college uh, focus on two exams, one college-specific and one national, which is the case in uh, Japan and a lot of other countries, but that is the way it's done. And so these entrance tests are way more high stakes than the SAT or than the ACT. You've got to do well. So everyone wants to do well on these tests, and that's why there's this tremendous desire to take after-school test prep classes from these for-profit tutoring firms. So you've got uh, you know, huge market demand, virtually no regulation of these uh, schools, certainly in Japan, some regulation in South Korea, but it's not per- pervasive, particularly it doesn't really regulate the content of instruction. What happens there? Do they, like Escalante, get run out of the system, the best teachers... Um, do they, like our best charter schools, grow moderately? You know, do the, do the best tutoring firms add 80 schools in a decade? Or do they grow more quickly? And do the best teachers get paid more and succeed on a, on a higher level? Well, it's definitely the latter. In Japan, the highest paid tutors at these chains of for-profit tutoring schools make more money than professional Japanese baseball players, or at least as much, depending on the baseball player and the, and the tutor. And, okay, Japanese baseball players don't make quite as much as ours, but we're talking a million dollars a year is not unusual for the top teachers at these tutoring firms. In Korea, it's ramping up beyond that. The most recent figures I've seen for the very top teachers at these tutoring centers is $4 million a year. Not unheard of. How do they do it? How can you afford to pay a great teacher, even if you wanted to, which I'm sure many of us would like to? How do you afford to pay a great teacher $4 million a year? Well, class sizes factor into it. A typical class size for some of these people is 50,000 students. The way they do it is they deliver their lectures not just in person, which they always do it in person as well because it's part of, uh, you know, part of being a good teacher is having a face-to-face interaction, but they televise and broadcast over the web and sell access to, over the web, their lessons. And the ones who are good have great word of mouth. And once you take, you know, a few lessons with a great teacher, you think, well, I'm really learning, so I'm going to pay for more of this. And it's relatively cheap for the students because they're paying, you know, just a tiny portion of the cost of delivering this lecture because there are 50,000 others who are also watching the same instructional, uh, you know, videotaped lesson. And the teachers, just like people at Starbucks, have profit sharing. 
they get paid a share of the money that the tutoring firms bring in. The uh, teacher, there was a teacher written about in the Financial Times of London who's uh, from South Korea, I think he taught English, made $2 million in 2006, and that's because he got 21% of all the tuition revenue that he brought in. 21% of every dollar anyone pays for tuition for his lessons goes into his pocket. Well, he, has a lot, he had a lot of imitators. I mean, there was a lot of competition. That's why it went from you know, his $2 million salary being the uh, high-profile one in 2006 to $4 million today. There's a lot of great people entering that field because you can make an enormous amount of money, and everyone's trying to figure out how to make the interactive delivery of these lessons better and you know, more effective for kids so that they will be more interested in using their lessons instead of others. Now... So it, it can happen. It is happening. You can have education as part of the free enterprise system. So the big question is, well, if it can happen, if it is happening, why don't we have it here? And why don't we have it particularly in mainstream K-12 education? And it's pretty obvious why that is. It's hard to compete with free. Uh, in most nations, the state gives away $12,000 or so worth of free K-12 regular education. If you have to charge kids, even if you only had to charge them $8,000, it's still $8,000 that parents would not otherwise have to pay if they send their kids to a f free state-run school. So unless we do something to even the financial impact of choosing an entrepreneurial school versus a state-provided school, we will never see the entrepreneurial sector grow in education, and we will never see the scale-up that we see with Starbucks and Whole Foods and Google and Facebook and everybody else. Uh, now, there are a lot of different policy ways to do that. There are you know, vouchers, education tax credits for, for your own kids, for donations to scholarship funds. There's a lot of different policies that could break down that current financial disincentive to choosing an entrepreneurial school. Um, there are, the details are very complicated, and I, I've concluded from looking at programs that there are big, significant differences between the different policies, and some will work better than others. Uh, but I'll leave a discussion of those details maybe to the question period if, uh, if people are interested, and I'll wrap up here and uh, really look forward to your questions. We have some uh, interesting things to talk about. So thanks very much. We have microphones uh, at the back of the room, so if you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hand, and uh, they will bring you the microphone. Yeah, we have a question right here. And if, if you would uh, identify yourself when you uh, have the mic, just your name and uh, affiliation. Um, my name is Mark Nadell, just here on my own behalf. Um, I'm curious about, in terms of scalability, the supply of wild men and teachers willing to commit to what it sounds like is like a Peace Corps type married to the job uh, profession. I can see for two years, I teach, or teach for America type of thing, but to make that, to expect that you can get more and more excellent people, take them from the law firms, from the investment banking firms, get, I mean, are there even enough wild men to make a dent in 10%, 20% of the public? And then, Teachers, do we have enough of them, and are they willing to be able to devote their lives to this the way it seems KIPP schools and your schools require? Um, there's not a shortage of teachers in America. There's a shortage of teachers who will put up with nonsense that we have in the public school. There's thousands of millions of teachers who just left it because they won't put it with it. I've never had a problem finding teachers. Uh, and uh, I think uh, there, there's plenty of people who want to do what we're doing. Uh, you know, in Oakland, 
I passed out some data. We're uh, our test scores in the book from last year. We even higher this year. Uh, we went up for a new charter, and the district denied us. Well, we're competing with them. We're, they're saying we're taking their kids. We are. Well, no, they don't say we're taking their kids. Let me back up. They say we're taking their money. They've never accused us of taking their kids. That was you're taking our money. And they're taking the money from the public schools. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, Indians, we like to steal. They would never accuse us of what we're actually doing, educating kids. Teachers, there's so many teachers out there who want to work in a great school where they can teach kids. There's so many people who want to lead. Uh, we have five schools now in Oakland, and we're up with the state to have another one. Out of our school in the last uh, nine years, uh, we've produced over 20 principals out of one little Indian, you know, little, little block in the ghetto. We produce, produce 20 teachers, I mean principals, who are in the public sector, I mean traditional public school, and our charter school. They need an opportunity. The problem is not enough teachers. The problem is not enough people who want to do this. Opportunity is what I think Andrew is describing. We don't have the opportunity in America. Yeah. Also, the strength, the, the school system is. I, I just want to follow up on that because uh, in reading uh, Ben's book, I think you get an answer partly to your question, which is. And, and an explanation of why Ben doesn't have that much trouble finding teachers who want to teach in his school and the rigors that you described, it's because he has created uh, an atmosphere uh, that gives people a sense of mission. He makes people want to work hard. They feel like they're a part of something great, and it makes them exhibit greatness. And this is exactly what great companies do in the private sector. Uh, when I started out, I was at Microsoft. And at Microsoft, we worked, you know, ridiculous hours all the time. People had sleeping bags and slept under their desks. My wife, when I met at Microsoft, had a sleeping bag under her desk and slept at work. Uh, you know, she was a bit of an insomniac. It was just not convenient to go home. You couldn't get enough work done if you went, you know, went home on a regular basis. It's an absolute combination of the two. Yes, you yeah, need Kip, both. Yours, it's a very good question. Kip, people talk about this all the time. Um, but they, so far, they have been able to find the teachers they want. The Richard Ingersoll studies at Penn show that there are two principal reasons, about 50-50, why people leave teaching. Number one, the money. Number two, the working conditions. Working conditions essentially means people respecting their work, mm -hmm. their feeling that they're actually changing things, helping kids in, in the conditions they have. So in the KIPP situation and many other Charles situation, for the money, they are, you know, in general getting more money because they're being paid a bit extra, maybe another 20% for the extra hours they, they have. It's not – it doesn't scale up just to the amount of extra hours. And the, the, as you know, the union in Baltimore is trying to screw the KIPP school in Baltimore by making them pay uh, exactly the same per hour they get for the regular hours. But they have a little more. And then since the KIPP schools have power, they are, for their best people, cutting private deals – if they're going to, somebody has a trouble with money, they're going to try in some way to get them more. And the flip side, the working conditions are so much better, as they just said, than the ordinary working conditions. Ability to actually be creative in the classroom. Teachers are doing things they want to do in the way that works um, and getting extra time to do it. I mean, great, great schools are, you know, the, the creative fire of teachers fueled by the, the fuel of extra time. That's what produces the KIPP. And so, so far, although they worry about it, they're finding all kinds of ways to keep the best people they've got and, or and to hire new ones. Uh, and, and, indeed, there's the, there's the professional athlete model that people have talked about where you would, indeed, um, have a, a, a system where teachers would come out of Teach for America, teach maybe five or six years, 
at Kip, which is you know they're up to their their late twenties, and then you let them go off and be lawyers, doctors, whatever, and and bring in a whole new crew of of young um, top athletes. Yeah. Other questions? I think there was uh, one on the side here. Uh, I'm Jason Botel. I'm with Kip in Baltimore, and thanks, Jay, for <laughs> mentioning our issue and all you've written about Kip. Um, I actually want to ask about the issue of teachers' unions. Um, you know, certainly for us in Maryland, we maybe not to scale up to the extent you're talking about, but we're poised to scale up, and we are hindered directly by, I would say, the influence that the teachers' union has on legislation. And I'm saying this not even criticism of the union, because I think you'd argue the union's doing what it's set up to do. The problem is we, the taxpayers, we, the parents, we, the employers, have allowed unions to dictate the terms of education reform, and we're painstakingly trying to grow against this power that we've allowed teachers' unions to amass. Not that they should have no voice, but in Maryland, they have all of the voice. And my question is, I've I've been talking lately with legislators and other folks, and there's just complete pessimism about the ability to reform at at any scale because of the power they have. Is there any getting through that. They have an endless stream of money that they take out of teachers' paychecks, whether the teachers want them to or not, and they use that money to influence legislation. I'd love to hear your comment about, is there any hope in other voices, parents, kids, individual teachers who want to do something different, being able to influence reform? You know, my, my, I'm an optimist. My wife calls me the Pollyanna from hell, because I'm so optimistic about everything. But this is one thing where I, my optimism goes to the extent of, I think the unions are changing, because all these young teachers are coming up through Teach for America and other places and they actually now see they can actually affect kids' lives. It's no longer just a job for them that, uh, you know, they're going to take a paycheck having no hope of actually, actually being productive. They now see they can be productive in certain situations that the unions are uncomfortable with. So that you can see in, in, in the dodging and weaving that Randy Weingarten does, she perceives that her membership is changing and she's going to have to act differently, starting her own charters and reacting to the charters in a different way. But that's a slow process. I don't see it really changing much. What we're going to have, I think, for the foreseeable future is, is desperados in desperate places where the union has lost all power, like D.C., because the schools are so bad, nobody's going to listen to the union anymore. Um, what we do in Oakland is we pay $7,000 more for our teachers than the, public, the traditional public schools, um, and uh, they will not allow our teachers to join. They approach me. Uh, you know, we want your teachers to, you know, would you allow your teachers to do it? And I said, sure. And they said, um, and then they found out what they were making. They said, but wait a minute, your teachers are going to have to take a pay cut. <laughs> no kidding. You can't make this stuff up. Ben Visnick's, a lot of Ben's in education. But, uh, he, yeah, he's going to have to take a pay cut, and that's not going to happen. Uh, but, you know, I want to point out something that I think is interesting about teachers' union. We don't have teachers' unions on reservations, and the schools are the worst. So in one area, I disagree. I don't think the teachers' unions are the problem as much as the school boards because I would like to get rid of school boards. If you get rid of school boards, who's the teachers' union going to go? They're the ones in Oakland. Our teachers' union in Oakland selects the school board members, and then the school board votes the way the union wants. So I'd like to move to a university model where we have one school board for the whole state of California, and if you want to go talk to them, you have to go to Sacramento. But... That's my answer. Yeah, I, I would just one-up that and say uh, basically get rid of anyone who stands in between the wild man and the customer. So there's no coffee board telling Starbucks how to brew a cappuccino. 
And nobody wants one because, you know, if they don't like Starbucks coffee, they just go to Caribou Coffee or Seattle's Best Coffee or some other chain. Uh, the, the amount of an impediment that the unions uh, create to excellence and the spread of excellence in the system now, and particularly in charter schools, is, is dependent on the status quo. It's a big upfront hurdle, right, to, to this initial phase of growth. But if you get a policy passed that allows parents to easily opt out of the system completely, out of the existing system completely, and send their kids to independently run schools, as they've done in Florida, for instance, with a scholarship tax credit program. In Florida, businesses can donate to private nonprofit funds that provide tuition assistance to poor kids. Parents go to the scholarship fund, get money, get a check, give it to the school, and they can afford private schooling. The business gets a tax credit for giving the money to this philanthropy in the first place. So the business benefits because they're improving the education of people in their community. doesn't cost them anything. The parents benefit. They get a better education. And once you have that, the union's power erodes. So when this scholarship program was first introduced in Florida, it got one Democratic vote in, I think, the entire legislature, both houses of the legislature, I think it got one Democratic vote. Uh, it has increased its popularity among Democratic legislators consistently over time, as it has shown that it's benefiting their constituents. And plus, they actually have some pretty smart people down there who are taking the trouble to bring constituents who are actually familiar with and using this program to visit with their elected representatives on a regular basis. And so the re- elected representatives, Democrat and Republican, can no longer just say, well, no, it's not a real problem. It's not really helping anybody. They've met the parents, and they know, and the parents are telling them, you must save and expand this program. So the last time it was voted on in May, uh, they wanted to add a new tax that the credit could be applied to. They got... 100% support from Hispanic Democrats in Florida. They got uh, a little over half the support, I think, of African-American Democrats, and uh, a third overall of all the Democrats in the state legislature, more than a third, supported the expansion of this program. So the teachers' unions, who typically have the most power over the Democratic Party, are losing it once you get a, leg- a, a bill passed that allows parents to have an end run around the system. But getting that bill passed is enormously problematic. Yeah, there's a question here up on the uh, right. Yeah, I'd like to hear a little more on scaling up and financing of this because we're talking about a huge nation and not counting on corporations when the economy is good, funding it, and when it's not, what happens to people who can't afford it? How do we pay for this? And if you want to make it profitable, how do you keep it profitable and get every every segment of society able to consistently send their kids to school? Well, what you need is a method of providing financial assistance that ensures that everybody can afford education for their kids in the marketplace so that they become active consumers. They can afford to buy schooling at whatever kind of school they think is best for their kids without, at the same time, putting strings on that money that prevent the schools from doing what they think best. So basically, you don't want a system that says, well, okay, Ben Chavis, you can open as many schools as you want, and we'll give you $10,000 per child, you know, no you know, no strings attached would be great. But if we say, well, wait a minute now, we think your teachers need a pay cut, and you need to change your curriculum in this way, it becomes a problem. So the question is, can you get a bill that allows every family to afford private schooling and have that sustain a system that's profitable in the same way that Starbucks is profitable or Whole Foods is profitable. And yes, you can. Um, 
there are places where this is done, though with, unfortunately, more regulation than is advisable. In the Netherlands, for instance, they provide universal vouchers. Any parent in the country, every parent in the country, basically has a certain amount of money allocated to their child, whether they choose a public or a private school. And private schools can compete to attract business, and they have grown as a share of the market in the Netherlands from virtually nothing in 1917 when this program was introduced to about 75% of all students in the Netherlands now are in the private sector. However, along with that program have come onerous and increasingly onerous regulations to the point where the profit motive itself has been forbidden now in the Netherlands. So Theoretically, you might be able to run a profitable business under this system, but you're forbidden by law. All private schools that accept the government funding must be nonprofits in the Netherlands. While this has obviously prevented people from being able to generate the kind of capital for massive R&D to come up with new and innovative ways of delivering education, so you don't have the same kind of dynamic, innovative marketplace that you would expect to see with 75% of kids in the private sector. So the amount of money necessary to, to sustain a program like this is there. We're spending much more on average for public schools than we spend on private schools in this country. Per pupil average in public schools in this country is $12,000 $12, about, a little over that now. For private schools, it's probably somewhere between $6,000 and $7,000, though it's very difficult to say. A lot of those are nonprofits, Catholic schools that receive some funding. I did an analysis in Arizona statewide a few years ago, found that the amount of funding that nonprofit schools are getting over and above tuition is only about another 20, 25%. So you're still looking at the average private school costing less than the average public school in this country. So the money is not a problem. It's just finding a policy that will allow the schools to operate with autonomy and still ensure universal access. I think there's a question right here. Hi, I'm Lindsay Burton. I'm a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, and I just want to get your comments on uh, President Obama's Race to the Top program. Um, and Mr. Chavis, you mentioned your feelings on uh, stimulus-type funding, and uh, states across the country are kind of making statewide reforms right now to make themselves more competitive as far as being able to earn this type of stimulus funding, um, including... Um, the way they use test scores to evaluate teachers and lifting caps on uh, charter schools. I'm wondering what kind of impact you think, good or bad, this is going to have on um, education reform going on uh, across the nation. Do you want to start, Ben? Um, I wrote a piece. I don't know if they'll publish it. I was um, for USA Today, and I talked about that. I, I like his idea about uh, tying test scores you know, into a, a teacher evaluations. I agree with him 100%. Um, I wouldn't have, what, remember the story I told you? I wouldn't have gotten a scholarship to college if it hadn't been for my results. I'm not, a, I was an elementary teacher, middle school, high school. I, I was a great teacher. And, and whatever method you use to evaluate me, I'm going to be okay. And I believe that's the way every teacher in our school feels that way. We have great teachers. Great teachers aren't concerned about tests. Uh, and people say you, have, you teach to the test. How do you, is teaching algebra teaching to the test? I love that when you're teaching to the test. Oh, thank you. At least you say we're teaching now <laughs> because we haven't been doing it in the past in Oakland, California. But uh, I, I agree with that. I, I, I'm happy about it. I'm surprised, to be honest with you. I think uh, um, the Democrats, and I'm a Democrat, I, I'm shocked that we're doing something now in education. I'm a big George Bush fan when it comes to you know, I'm a, I love No Child Left Behind because it's all about accountability. So for the, for the Democrats to pick it up and, 
you know, continue to fight. I, I, I was shocked. No, I don't think we should put much faith in what the feds do in education <laughs> policy. This is interesting, and I think it does help that the President of the United States, a Democrat, and his education secretary are doing things that are absolutely opposed to NEA policy, particularly on, on um, um, getting rid of laws that restrict states from paying teachers based on merit. And, other, and on the whole focus on charter schools, which the Obama administration is very much against the instincts of teachers' unions, and, and so it's good to have him pushing that. But the, the money is – there's not that much money there. The real future of American education is in the acts of individual educators like Ben and in individual cities. States are a little more powerful, but it's really on the ground where things change and the feds can cheer us on, but they're not going to make a big difference. Yeah, I think that there are some great ideas in the race to the top. I think the idea, like Ben says, of tying uh, teachers' compensation to their performance in the classroom, their ability to raise kids' scores, great idea. Uh, But the idea of the federal government getting involved in the first place and the hope that this will somehow actually achieve the intended goals uh, seems to me completely misplaced. Uh, if you look at federal, invention, federal intervention in education, we don't really see any of the benefits that have been promised over the past 45-odd years since the ESEA was first introduced. I recently did a chart on the CatoAtLiberty.org, which is our blog here, where I showed the change, percent change in federal spending per pupil and percent change in NAEP scores, NAEP scores, at the end of high school. Basically, the NAEP scores are flat lines. Reading and math are flat since 1970. Science fell, actually, by about a percent, and spending per pupil by the federal government has gone up by 190%. It's nearly tripled. So most of the things that we hoped we would get out of federal spending have not been delivered, and that's over 45 years. I'm not going to suddenly start becoming optimistic now. Uh, And the other thing is there is... uh, there are elements to the race for the top that I think are absolutely appalling and, and horrible ideas. And one of them is the push for national standards. The argument is that, well, math is the same in Connecticut as it is in Nebraska. Why not teach it the same way and have standards and have kids go through the standards? Well, sure, the math is the same, but kids aren't all the same. The idea that every child in the United States is going to learn math at exactly the same pace and that they should be marched through a curriculum in lockstep from arithmetic to algebra to geometry to calculus, and we're all going to learn math at exactly the same pace is completely ludicrous. Uh, I mean, I'm a family with two brothers and a sister, and none of us were even remotely close in the pace that we learn subjects. That's within one family, let alone you know, 50 million kids. So I think there are some really bad ideas in the race for the top as well. Yeah, you've had a question here for a while. Sorry. Oh, we have a microphone here for you. I'm Lois Tett, a concerned citizen and a proponent for the public school. My kids got out 20, 25 years ago, so I guess, you know, I've been gone. But as far as uh, the charter schools, KIPP, I've heard of. My great-granddaughter's in there. I didn't want her there. I know nothing of KIPP. I like the other charter school here. Uh, A fellow named Ken started it, uh, and he started in his home 20 years ago with youth, uh, mostly boys, on his own dime, he now has 10 chartered schools. Uh, I'm a little, uh, I, I'm very impressed with you, Mr. Chavis, and what, what, what you're doing, uh, but I don't understand how you can support giving money to kids for an incentive. You cannot uh, 
compete with the drug dealer. Believe me, you can't. Your little dollars you're giving him, them, you know. Uh, isn't there another way to give incentives to those kids besides dollars? Dollars are not the bottom line in terms of everything. The churches started the schools with their own money and volunteerism. Anytime somebody has to be paid to do something, doesn't have the wherewithal to do it because they love it and would do it for free. Uh, Harvard University has a business school. Somebody put aside $20 million to make those kids learn ethics because their uh, mode for business was get the money, get the money, get the money. We don't care how we get it, get it. It's too much of that mess. That's and uh, I, I'd love to answer you. It's obvious you didn't read my book. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> you would have read the book, and I said this. First of all, I do it for free to answer your question. I don't take a salary. I love it. Okay, number two, in my book, I talk about if it wasn't for the church, my people and your people, if you read Up From Slavery by Frederick, we wouldn't be here. The church, I trust no government. The church was there when they said, you Indians cannot go to white schools, even though you guys are paying taxes. I don't know where this came from, that Indians don't pay taxes. We pay taxes, guys. Okay? If you live on a military base, you don't pay taxes. You don't pay that property tax and all. But if you live on a reservation, you don't pay property taxes, but you pay state taxes, and you pay federal taxes. You just don't pay the local property. So let's get back to that. But I, I'm in agreement with you on the church. Uh, the drug dealers, I disagree with you because I've proven it wrong, proven you. I did pay the drug dealers in my neighborhood. What I did, if you read the book, when I came to the neighborhood, the drug dealers controlled 35th and MacArthur, and I, I marched down to the, where the drug dealers were on the corner, and they were playing the bones, as we call them. And so I entered the game with a dollar, and they said, white man, who are you? And, you know, everywhere I'm a white man, <laughs> I want to be Jewish. I don't want to be white. Because <laughs> they have the money. Money's not important to you, but I can do things with money. So they had the money and the education. That's why I want to come back as Jewish, not white. <laughs> and not Indian either. Uh, so uh, I've already had that experience. I want a different one. But I threw in my dollar and playing with them. They're like, white man, who are you? I said, I'm the principal of the school. No, you're not. Yes, I am. So I got to know these guys. I invited them to my school. Everybody, especially blacks, talk about it takes a village to raise a child. I want you to add to it, every village has an idiot. <laughs> okay? But I don't think most people in education are interested in knowing their community. When I went and met with the drug dealers, the union came out against me. He's meeting with the drug dealers. I got those guys, and I paid the drug dealers, I paid them, to catch my kids who are skipping school and bring them to me. And it was a lot cheaper than having an attend. what do you call these people? Truant officer. Truant officer. I didn't have to pay insurance. I didn't have to pay health. I didn't have to pay all this other nonsense. I only had to pay them four or five bucks. And then all the kids said, well, Dr. Chavis is in with the gangs. And the union said, Dr. Chavis is in with the gangs. Uh, if you read my book, you'll see that we disagree more than we do. I trust, let me tell you something about my wife's family came from Central America because they were killing them. Immigrants come to this country, your ancestors, all of your ancestors, no matter what you say, came here because of capitalism, a chance to make a better life. And if you don't like the money, give me your money, and I will do great things with it. <laughs> it is about the money. Don't be embarrassed that we're taking money. We have another question here on the right. Hi, I'm uh, Brian Jones. I'm a lawyer in town, but I'm uh, also 
uh, vice chairman of the D.C. Charter School Board, which is the authorizer here in D.C., and this is a question for you, Jay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what role, you know, given that w- what you've seen around the country, I mean, what's been your experience? What have you seen in terms of the role that authorizers have to play in sort of replicating good models? I mean, you've seen KIPP here in D.C., and, you know, you look at what, uh, you know, Green Dot, you know, an, another wild man, Steve Barr, out in California has done and sort of in the charter context out there. Do you see that uh, authorizers are generally inhibitors of, you know, the sort of replication of good models, or are there things that we can and should be doing that uh, that encourage that kind of Well, I think uh, you and I both agree, sadly, if you look at the whole country, they're um, more often inhibitors than encouragers. Uh, you know, we don't have any charter schools in Northern Virginia. There is a law in Virginia that says that the school boards there can authorize charter schools. They don't do it because they see the charter schools as competitors. And we and you're you're on the D.C. Public Charter School Board. We had a perfect example until recently of the difference in which you could the D.C. regular D.C. School Board could chart authorize schools and your board could authorize schools. And I would go to D.C. School Board meetings when they were talking about charter schools, and you see those board members seething in anger that they had to deal with charter schools. They didn't want to authorize charter schools. They didn't like charter schools. The Congress made them do this. Fortunately, a lot of good things have happened recently, and they have exceeded that authority and given it to you, a board full of great people who really understand what good charter schools mean, and that's why you know, we have so many good charter schools in this city. So D.C. and a, you know, a few other places are good examples, but largely the authorizing system we have, which is usually giving the power to school boards, doesn't work. That's what's going. Why things are so messed up in Maryland, certainly in Virginia, and we've got to do something about that. Yeah, there's actually a pretty horrible example recently. I don't know if you saw the stories or how many people here did, but uh, in Boston and in Massachusetts, charter authorizers, there's a smoking gun email from I think it was the Secretary of State, State uh, Board Chairman of Education, or Secretary of Education for the for the state to the Education Czar who was working for the governor, in which they were basically using a political calculus to decide which charter school should be authorized. Well, I don't really like this one, and uh, you know, but we can't not authorize any of them, so let's authorize one, and I think this one's the most harmless. Ignoring completely the recommendations, which were based on, uh, you know, reviews that had been, you know, taken tons of time and stacks of paper about which schools should be authorized, they basically just made the decision on political calculus, and that was, in fact, the decision discussed in the email was, in fact, the one that was made, and now a whole bunch of newspapers in Massachusetts are calling for the resignation of both of these people, and I'm pretty sure that's not the only sordid case of charter authorization uh, in politics. Well, I think uh, we have time maybe for one more question. Right here on the uh, left. Hi, my name is Spear Lancaster. And uh, I'm with the charter school, Chesapeake Science Point Charter School in Anne Arundel County nearby. Uh, There's 19 19 middle schools in Anne Arundel County. Nine of them didn't meet AYP last year. Uh, we're number one in the county, number two in the state, and uh, I really appreciate being here and, and talking with you. But but what I want to talk about is bureaucracies. Uh, one of my favorite books by Ludwig von Mises is a little small book. I buy lots of copies and give to young people, and it says that a bureaucracy is a bureaucracy is a bureaucracy, and the first is to survive and the second is to grow. Can we replicate you guys are basically geniuses in your own right, uh, Mr. Chavez, and I'm, I'm really impressed, as, as is Kip, <laughs> and, and I know Jason. Can, can, 
I was a manufacturer's rep for most of my life. Straight, straight commission, I repped a lot of big Fortune 500 companies. One of them was Rubbermaid for 33 years. I was a commercial rep for the Mid-Atlantic area. Can we take that model in education? And, and, and if, if so, how, how are we going to do it? Because once, I, once you get beyond a certain point, I, I sold Walmart, I sold Sears, I sold, you know, all, all the big companies, Marriott and so forth. Once you get past a certain point, you, the, 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 the dead hand of that bureaucracy mm-hmm. seems to take over. Well, I, well, one thing I just wanted to, uh, to interject before Ben answers is that uh, the free enterprise system is, is like a living ecosystem. You constantly have new businesses coming into being, growing, being fantastic, maybe going off mission, maybe being beat out by competitors for some reason, and then fading into the background. And I don't think there's any – there's no system in which you're going to have some excellent uh, new institution come into being and just persist forever uh, in its original state of, of perfection. Uh, so you just need a system that will keep creating – new schools and keep helping them to expand. And the free enterprise system has shown us that it can do that in every other field and that it is doing it now in education in certain parts of the world. So I really think we can do it here, too, if we just break down the financial barriers. Yeah, Ben? Um, I, I'm going to use Jay as an example. You know, Jay is my hero in public education because Jay didn't cost the public school one red cent to do what he's done. Jay Matthews is the biggest revolutionary in America in public education as far as I'm concerned. And I've said that I'm, I'm just honored to be here to meet him. But the reason I have such high regard for Jay is he changed the system. He changed the way we do things, and it didn't cost the taxpayer anything. He created a ranking, a simple ranking based on AP, academic pl- advanced placement. I love AP. <laughs> Even though I think the intention of AT when it first started in 1955, which is not an accident, they had other intention. But what Jay did is he implemented an, he, he introduced us, those of us in education to an idea that he could rank us based on the fact if our kids are taking AP courses or IB courses. Uh, didn't cost us anything. Didn't cost the public one dime. That's changed. He cut through the bureaucracy. So do I believe I'm sitting next to someone who changed American education? This guy is the wild man. Not me. I'm just old country boy from North Carolina. <laughs> he changed public education everywhere I go now. You know what people are saying? How many, they ask, how many AP courses are your school offering, Ben? We're offering this many. And why? We all want to be on Jay's list. So I believe you can change. And grandma, thank God for grandmas. Because if it wasn't for my grandma, I wouldn't be here. We need your voice. We need grandma's voice. Uh, I'm going to end with that. Well, I think that's uh, probably all the time we have, and so now we have a uh, light lunch upstairs if anybody would like to stick around and uh, chat with our speakers. Thanks very much for coming today.